0: This morning we're going to consider the fiery furnace, the fiery furnace, Daniel, the whole of chapter 3. That's verses 1 through to 30. Up until now, in the book of Daniel, we've been considering Daniel the Jew, and to a much lesser extent, his three companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who were renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. By the Babylonians when they were taken into captivity along with the rest of Judah. However, in today's passage, chapter 3, which doesn't even mention Daniel, we shall be looking at the faithfulness of, uh, faithfulness to God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the faithfulness of God to them. Those three young men had already had their faith in God put to the test along with Daniel. In chapter 1, when they were first taken from Judah into Babylonian captivity to be trained up as Babylonian wise men. As was seen in chapter 1, during their three years of indoctrination, they refused to defile themselves with the palace food and wine, wine that the, the, the king himself drunk, and they chose instead to eat pulses and drink water. Now in chapter 3, we shall see how they responded to King Nebuchadnezzar's decree to fall down and worship a golden image that the king himself had set up. We'll have a look at verse 1 in chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits he, he set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Towards the end of the previous chapter, chapter 2, in, in verse 47, King Nebuchadnezzar said to Daniel, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods, and a Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, seeing that thou couldst reveal this secret. He said that to Daniel after the Lord had, through his servant Daniel, told the king what he had dreamt and also a full explanation of that dream was given. However, don't imagine for one moment that the king, what he said there in verse 47 of chapter 2, don't imagine that they were the words of someone who had come to faith in the one true God, Jehovah God. I think there's a, there's a clue there anyway. He is a God of gods. You can almost imagine that. He's, the, the, Nebuchadnezzar is really just acknowledging that Jehovah is one of many gods as far as he saw it. As shall be seen today, he was still very much entrenched in pagan idolatry. For example, in the very next, in the very first verse of chapter 3 rather, we read of the king setting up a huge golden image. It was not simply a statue statue of himself or some other king or some statesman, like we have statues in our land in England, we have statues, well, we used to, most of them have now been pulled down. But anyway, it wasn't anything like that. Apart from anything else, the image... Was 90 feet high and 9 feet broad. In other words, it was 10 times higher than it was broad. I don't suppose the height of the average human being is more than three or four times uh, as great as the breadth of the human being. So it was out of, out of all proportion for a human being. It was clearly an image of one of the Babylonian gods. As shall be seen, the king decreed that the image should be worshipped. No doubt it was a god, an idol. Clearly, King Nebuchadnezzar was not a born-again believer. He was not someone who really knew the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom God would one day send into the world to reconcile sinners to him, to, to the only true God. Actually, by paying lip service to Almighty God, as he did in chapter 2 and verse 47, whilst at the same time paying homage to false gods, the king was doing what many people do, from the least to the greatest. I'm talking about now. For example, when I lived in India, I became accustomed to seeing professing Christians with their idols lined up on their mantelpieces in their homes, or various images on the wall in their houses and perhaps including a picture of what was supposed to be the Lord Jesus Christ amongst all the other pictures. Or an image of Jesus amongst all the other ornaments on the mantelpiece. Don't imagine that Western civilization is any better than India. Idols are not just statues, ornaments pictures of false gods on walls, they can take any form and they can be anything that takes a higher place in your affections than God. There are plenty of false gods right here on our little island home such as money, possessions, homes and cars. Here and beyond these shores there are movie stars, overpaid sports personalities, And pop idols, it's interesting that they're called idols, isn't it? Pop idols who are worshipped and adored by their fans. Also in Western society, instead of going to church to worship God, many people now go on pilgrimages to shopping malls, where there are many tempting idols on display, just waiting to be purchased, taken home, worshipped and adored. In chapter 3, verses 2 through to 7, it can be seen that when King Nebuchadnezzar set up his golden image, the dignitaries, such as princes and provincial governors, attended the dedication ceremony. Also, a royal decree was issued ordering everyone to fall down and worship the golden image when the sound of various musical instruments was heard the punishment for non-compliance was death by being thrown into a fiery furnace. It's most unlikely that King Nebuchadnezzar's decree ordering everyone to fall down and worship the golden image when the sound of various musical instruments was heard would have met with much resistance in a land where people worshipped idols anyway. Furthermore, even though Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego resisted, most of the Hebrew captives would no doubt have obeyed the king's commandment. After all, let's not forget why it was that the Jews were delivered by the Lord into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar in the first place. It was because they had forsaken the Lord and worshipped false gods. By way of application, the assembling of the leaders of the Babylonian Empire for the dedication of a golden image, it reminds me of something that happened just six years ago in 2016 when some of Europe's most powerful leaders attended a dedication not of a golden image but of a 35-mile-long tunnel, the Gotthard Base Tunnel, which passes through the Swiss Alps. German Chancellor Angela Merkel, French President Francoise Hollande, Italian Prime Minister Matteo Renzi and Austrian Chancellor Christian Kern were present at a ceremony that amounted to a particularly grotesque pagan worship for the whole world to see. The audience was treated to a performance that was filled with occult and obscene acts and dances. Someone masquerading as the devil wove in and out amongst the other dancers, some of whom were demonic figures and others who were semi-naked. At the end of that repugnant extravaganza, the officials and heads of state applauded and gave a standing ovation. Far from simply being just a bit of fun, that show demonstrated just how much idolatry and Satanism are entrenched in Western society and in the world as a whole. It's not for nothing that in the Bible the devil is described as the God of this world. We've all read that as Christians, or you've heard it from me umpteen times, but I just wonder how much it sinks in, just how demonic this world is from the least to the greatest. I'm pointing this out to everyone, but in particular, to more than a few naive, green-behind-the-ears Christians who don't seem to have grasped the extent to which demonic forces are at work in this world, and in particular amongst the world leaders who conspire against the Lord and against his Christ. As for the music that signalled a time of idol worship in pagan Babylon, one of the commentators, William Wisby, who was an American Baptist pastor and Bible teacher, who has been promoted to glory now, he made an interesting and I think valid point. He said, Nebuchadnezzar was wise to use instrumental music because it could stir the people's emotions and make it easy for him to manipulate them and win their submission and obedience. Throughout history, music and song have played an important role in strengthening nationalism, motivating conquest, and inspiring people to act. Music has the power so to grip human thoughts and emotions that people are transformed from being free agents into becoming mere puppets. The English poet William Congreve wrote that music has charms to soothe a savage breast. But music also has power to release the savage in the breast. Music can be used as a wonderful tool and treasure from the Lord or as a destructive weapon from Satan. From what I've observed, a lot of lively And modern church services start with a prolonged period of loud, contemporary, feel-good music, which is blasted out by talented musicians, whilst worship leaders prance around on stage and they encourage everyone to join in for a time of worship where the word of God is most certainly not the focus. Can you see the similarity between those churches with all that music and dancing and prancing followed by a message that has little or nothing to do with the God of the Bible and what we have in our passage with God vainly, uh, with people rather, people vainly worshipping an idol when prompted by music. I'm going to read to you now verses 15 through to 19. Now, if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made, well, but if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? What defiance in those words, eh? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not... Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake, and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. I don't know how that's possible, but clearly it happened. Fiery furnace made seven times hotter than it already was. Suffice to say, it was extremely hot. In those verses, verses 15 through to 19, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to fall down and worship the golden image. Even after they had been reported to the king, who warned them that they would be cast into a fiery furnace, They could have avoided all that trouble had they simply bowed down before the image and made a pretense of worshipping it. But they didn't. Dear Christian, instead of being led by the Lord Jesus Christ in the paths of righteousness for his namesake, do you sometimes walk according to the course of this pagan land just so as you don't rock the boat? or at work, or wherever wherever you happen to be, and with whosoever you happen to be with, you just go with the flow, and make a pretense of doing what everyone else is doing. How often do you meekly, or rather weakly, go with the flow of ungodly people, in order not to cause offence, in order not to get yourself in trouble. And you justify your actions by saying that you did not enter the spirit of it. and Again, that it was just a pretense. Also, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego resolved not to fall down and worship the golden image, even if the Lord, who was able to deliver them from the fiery furnace, chose not to deliver them. That was a demonstration of a genuine faith in the only true God. After all, anyone can refuse to obey ungodly orders from a pagan king if deliverance by God is guaranteed. But Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego did not have such a guarantee. For them it was enough simply to be obedient to God's command not to bow down and serve any graven image, whether they lived or whether they died. It made no difference. I wouldn't go as far as to say that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were blasé, or indifferent, or unconcerned about the possibility of dying a horrible death, being cut up, uh, not cut up into little pieces, being thrown into a fiery furnace. After all, back in chapter 2 and verse 18, those three men and Daniel prayed that they would not perish with the other wise men of Babylon and God delivered them. But they actually prayed that they would not perish with the other wise men. On that occasion, the king had ordered that they be cut in pieces. However, they did not allow the threat of death to dictate their actions, as we see in the chapter we're studying today. And neither should we. We should not let a fear of anything dictate what we do. Except for fear of God, of course. As the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Indeed, it was Paul's desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. I don't suppose that those words of the Apostle would be the sentiment of people, including Christians, who have made for themselves idols in this present world. Idols that when it comes down to it, they adore and they cherish more than God. Even their own family. God must be first in your affections. That's not an order for me, by the way. Born again Christian... God ought to be, shall I say, first in your affections. Moving on with our considerations. In Psalm Psalm 23, verse 4, David said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. As such, even though the Lord makes no promises to deliver his people from various trials, such as a fiery furnace, they can be certain that he is right there with them, as we shall now see in verses 24 and 25, which I shall now read to you. Verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonied, and rose up in haste, and spake, and said unto his counsellors, did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. <laughs> Again, what's it say in Psalm 23? I, I say, I've read it to our dear friend, Helen in hospital three times now. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. In verse 25 here, King Nebuchadnezzar referred to a fourth person in that fiery furnace and he's described him as being like the Son of God. Whether it was quite literally the Son of God in that furnace, or perhaps an angel of God, it matters not. Because either way, God was with those three young men in the fiery furnace. The Apostle Paul had a lot to say in his epistle to the Ephesians about God always being with those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world, and quickened, or made spiritually alive, and saved by his grace. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For one thing, dear Christian, Paul said that Christ dwells by faith in your heart. I love that verse. Christ dwells by faith in your heart. Also, you are sealed with, not by, sealed with, the God, the Holy Spirit, who is the earnest or the deposit of your heavenly inheritance. To be sealed with the Holy Spirit is to have a foretaste of heaven. And that is quite something, isn't it? Even in this wicked world, to have the earnest of your inheritance to be sealed with God the Holy Spirit. Finally, it pleased God to deliver Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah completely unscathed from the fiery furnace without in any way playing down how great a miracle of God that was. The fact is that all born again Christians can bear testimony of an even greater deliverance by God. Deliverance from sin, Satan and everlasting punishment through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That must trump everything. That miracle of God, for me, it, it, it for me, it's above creation itself. I mean, you'd be amazed that God created everything in six days. But for me, there's nothing greater than making me a new creature in Christ. And thank God for that. God was with his people in King Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. However, the Bible speaks of another fiery furnace where God is not with those who are cast in. That fire is hell fire. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through to 9, the Apostle Paul was speaking about the coming judgment of God and he said, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Hellfire must surely be a fire to be avoided at all costs. Therefore, repent, believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and from then on, know that the God of your salvation is with you and he is in you in all the storms of life and indeed the fiery furnaces, all the trials of life, that God is with you, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. The God who loved you and who gave himself for you at Calvary's cross. Amen.